Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. I really didn't think much of it. I just talked about the stress, honestly. Some people might start to um, isolate more. Women, 50s, brain fog, menopause, that, sure, that type sure. of thing. I couldn't imagine this with Adrian because she is always the sharpest. How about you? How are you doing today? Well, uh, thank you for asking. Today we're spending the entire hour talking about a disease that affects an estimated 6.7 million people living in the U.S. and over 11 million people who provide unpaid care for those diagnosed with it. That disease is Alzheimer's. And according to the National Institutes of Health, it's the seventh leading cause of death in the United States and the most common cause of dementia among older adults. The effects of Alzheimer's disease aren't limited, however, to those many millions who know they have the disorder or are looking after people with Alzheimer's right now. As more of our nation's population ages, more will experience its impacts directly. So there's urgency to talking about Alzheimer's, both for the present and a future that is unfolding now. What is it like to be diagnosed and live with the disease? What does it mean to provide care for people who have the disease as a medical professional, a paid caregiver, or an unpaid family member, or even a very close friend? Today, we'll explore those questions and discuss realities that face face patients, caregivers, and health providers. Let's start today with insights from two people with very different yet intersecting experiences with Alzheimer's. Deb Job is with us. Deb was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's at the age of 53. Now 57, the Lake St. Louis resident has been living with Alzheimer's diagnosis for four years. Deb, welcome to the program, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Arnesia Kalk, a gerontologist in St. Louis. She works at Oak Street Health and also runs her own practice. Welcome, Arnesia. Thank you for having me. Now, Deb, I think there are certain things that people associate with someone who has Alzheimer's, and many people would not guess that you have that diagnosis. How do people typically react when you tell them that you have Alzheimer's? Because I am on the early side of it and on the younger onset portion of it. On the outside, you may not see this. And what you see is, okay, no, maybe it's stress or maybe it's something else. That can't be the case. Mm -hmm. But there is a myriad of individuals that are impacted between the ages of 40 and and 65 Mm -hmm. with an early stage younger onset. So you may see me one day being fine. The next day, I I may not be. Mm -hmm. Now, Arnesia, what do you think people should know about the way early symptoms of Alzheimer's present? I think that it's really important to know that sometimes these symptoms are so hidden. Um, It's very difficult to detect and to realize, um, often because of, you know, things that we typically do in our normal day. We multitask constantly. Um, There's also the issue of, you know, COVID. We just went through a horrible pandemic. Um, And we have many people that are questioning whether or not they do have this disease, Mm -hmm. um, or if it's simply brain fog. So it it can definitely be very difficult to detect Mm -hmm. when, you know, the symptoms kind of mesh with uh, general things of our busy lives, like forgetting your keys or forgetting your wallet and thinking, okay, well, do I have this? Do I not have it? Right. And what are the differences between the symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia? So for this, Alzheimer's disease is the actual disease itself. Um, Plaques and tangles are what's built in the brain from proteins. 
dementia is an umbrella term for an onset of symptoms. So they're a little bit different um, because you can have Alzheimer's disease without dementia and dementia without AD as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Deb, when was it that you started noticing your own symptoms? Uh, when did you know that something was, was off? I think this speaks for her very well with what she was saying. I really didn't think much of it. I was having memory problems. Uh, My husband said I was forgetting a lot of things. At work, I worked in a very visible, high-stress environment, Mm -hmm. and it was a very intensive uh, year and a half, almost two-year project. I was finding myself not being able to retain the information. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was taking me literally two, three, sometimes four times longer to complete a task that I used to be able to do in my sleep. Mm -hmm. I'd be in the middle of a governance presentation and lose my words completely. Mm -hmm. And I just talked it up to stress, honestly. Or maybe a woman, 50s, brain fog, menopause, that that type of thing. It was my husband that finally said, Deb, something is wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Now, how long did it take for you to get a diagnosis? I'm one of the the lucky ones, and everyone (coughs) should have the experience I have, which is why I advocate so heavily. It was around end of March or April, which I finally went into my primary. My primary did not discount it, sent me to have an MRI, MRI, sent me to a neurologist, Then the test went ahead and and PET scans and lumbar punctures sent me off to Mayo where my final diagnosis. So within six months, actually within three months, we knew it was a brain-related disease. Mm -hmm. Anisha, is that typical or unusual as far as the the amount of time it took from um, the point of asking about it and then getting uh, an answer? I would say that that's kind of difficult to determine. I think it depends on what type of access you have to the treatment um, and also to detection. Uh, Many of the people that I interact with are in late and end stages Mm -hmm. of the disease because of that, you know, lack to access. But I also believe that six months, you know, three to six months to find out is much too long. Um, I think that, you know, we don't necessarily know the direct date of onset and every minute, every second that we're putting into finding out this diagnosis is so crucial. Mm -hmm. And why is it crucial? I believe that it's really important that we're trying to preserve the person. We're trying to preserve their body. We're trying to preserve their mind, um, all of their faculties. We, as a people, deserve to have that that right, that, that immediate access to know um, if we do have this. And if so, then we should be able to, you know, try to be more preventative in leading a, a much healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Does what Arnesia or Deb said, uh, what they've said, ring true for you? What's your experience been like? Our phone, email, and social media lines are open to include you in our conversation. If you have a question or comment about today's topic, give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpr.org. Deb, Arnesia was saying finding out as soon as possible is is critical. Can you talk a bit about how your life has changed since you received the diagnosis? Uh, there's been positive and, and negatives in my life that has changed, obviously. Uh, I agree with her in regards to uh, the interventions. So being diagnosed early in this process, I've gone through counseling. I've gone through cognitive therapy, speech therapy, uh, support groups, things like that. Now, how things have changed, I no longer can work because my cognitive function is impaired. Mm-hmm. I cannot drive anymore because I lose my way and the road looks a little weird. Mm-hmm. I um, have difficulty processing information sometimes, like the stove. Mm-hmm. We've, I, I don't cook anymore because I burnt myself and my poor husband. Oh, okay. So it's it's those daily life activities, things I forget right. to, to do. And the diagnosis has affected not only you, but your, your husband, as in the case of the, the stove, um, in, in other ways. What other aspects of, 
of life and with family have changed? We've become closer. We've always always a close family. Uh, my husband and I, we lived in Florida for eight years and then recently moved back to St. Louis last year to be closer to family, uh, but also for the support system that he needs as well. Mm-hmm. So we make it a point to really, my two daughters are in their 30s, but they are very, very involved with my husband. He'll, they'll call, sorry, then we'll talk. Now, I know they're talking, mm-hmm. but they'll talk because what I may see, I'm fine, but what he sees, it's a little different from what my perception is. Sure, sure. Arnisha, in what Deb is sharing, I mean, is there anything um, that tends to surprise families who are dealing with a, an Alzheimer's diagnosis? Is, is what she was talking about common? Are there some other things that often will come up in, in the family context? I think that everything that she's saying is spot on. Um, it's very common um, for families to become closer, um, especially while trying to partner together as caregivers um, and just to be a stronger support system. I think that I've also seen families also tear, torn apart. Um, and it's most likely due to not having the resources, not knowing you know, how we're supposed to go about this and I think that when you have a stronger support system, it makes it easier to keep people at home, mm. you know. But when you don't have that, um, you know, pe- the the population for, you know, nursing home care is increasing tremendously. Right, right. We had um, Greg respond to an engagement question that we had put out on Twitter. and was, has a family member or loved one spent time in a dementia care facility in St. Louis? And what was the experience like? And to this point about family um, and the decisions that need to be made, Greg said, yes, um, it was incredibly difficult for all involved. Three or four um, of the facilities claimed to be able to handle things. They were clearly unprepared, unqualified, unable to handle. So, you know, it, it does seem there is a, a huge range of what experiences are, are going to be. I think that's part of the reason we're, we're having this discussion today. Um, Deb, you said that currently you are receiving different kinds of um, counseling and therapy. What of the, the treatments that you would like to have um, do not have access to because of geography or um, other factors, I think the the I think one of the most critical things is unfortunately at a federal level right now with new Alzheimer treatments coming out and with lecanemab now on the scene where the VA has approved it and as well as the FDA. And unless you're in a clinical trial, you don't have access to it. And I and that's just one of what's in the pipeline. But because an entire class is impacted. It's my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and it's other people's lives. I should be making that decision with my doctor. So I'd like to have access to those type of things. Sure. On the point of clinical trials, I mean, is that something with the people that you've worked with? Do they have access to that? Um, and they are, again, you had mentioned that you work with patients who tend to be in the latter stages. So how does that shake out? I have never personally known anyone um, in end stages who has participated in clinical trials. Um, I've had a lot of experience in skilled nursing facilities. And with that also comes all of these older adults who are on Medicaid. Um, I have not seen anyone reach out for clinical trials. And I think that there's a lot of things that are conflicting there as to why that's not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that in the facilities that I've been in, they've been primarily or dominantly African-American. Um, and I think that it is very difficult. Um, and I can say that also, you know, as an African-American, the the ability to reach out to do a clinical trial is terrifying mm-hmm. um, due to, you know, our country's past of even having, you know, the Tuskegee Syphilis Project. Sure, sure. Everyone that I've spoken to regarding clinical trials is terrified. That's something that we we know, like we're not doing that. And I think that if families and if those who have it had the education 
and understood what is available to them, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be so intimidating and so scary. Mm-hmm. Deb, you're nodding. Yeah, I think it's a cultural, there's so many cultural biases out there. There's so many biases, like she said. And each culture responds to it a little bit differently. Yeah. And unfortunately, male caregivers uh, and African-American male caregivers, they have a very strong burden. And it's a financial burden. And that's rough. But then again, American Indians, from a cultural aspect, they would rather look at it more internally Mm -hmm. than that. So it's breaking down those barriers and those biases to help ensure there's access. But it's also having community resources and individuals on the local level that can help to educate community educators in more underserved rural populations. Mm Deb, it seems that the diagnosis has also led to your becoming very active in raising awareness around um, around Alzheimer's here in Missouri. So it's it it seems like that is a it's a positive outcome of a of a situation that that you are living with. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story with us. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue today's show on Alzheimer's disease. When we come back, we'll talk more with Arnesia Kalk and add a primary caregiver, a male African-American, in fact, to our conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation about barriers to care and diagnosis for people living with Alzheimer's disease with local gerontologist Arnesia Kalk. Arnesia and I were just speaking with Deb Job, someone currently living with Alzheimer's, just before the break. Let's bring on now a caregiver, Theon Phillips, um, into today's discussion. Theon cares for his elder sister, Adrienne who started showing signs of Alzheimer's disease in 2016. They currently live together in East St. Louis, where they both grew up, and where he serves as Adrienne's primary caregiver. Thank you for joining us, Theo. Thank you very much for having me. Theon, how is Adrienne doing today? Um, Adrienne is pleasant today. Uh, you know, you always hear about people that are angry or kind of upset or, or kind of get nasty when they are when they go through the disease. But Adrienne has been pleasant throughout the day. When I was serving her breakfast this morning, uh, I have a playlist on Alexa and I, some Motown tunes were on, and she was kind of <laughs> bobbing her head and smiling. So she's she's pleasant, and she's been pleasant throughout this whole ordeal. Mm-hmm. And where is she right now? Uh, she is at home. My daughter is with her today. Um, she goes to adult daycare three days a week when I am working, and on the weekends we have a personal assistant that um, comes in to help with her. Mm-hmm. And um, my wife is in the medical field, and she has rolled up her sleeves and taken on the, the task of taking care of Adrian as her needs increase. Mm-hmm. Your employer... You said three days a week you go to work. Is your employer understanding of your situation? They are. I am um, so happy that I that I guess over the years I've, I've gained a relationship with my employer that they are understanding and I have the FMLA in place so when there's times that I need to take off, I can. And uh, uh I feel a genuine concern from my employer, and I know that that's not always the case, but I feel like I'm pretty lucky in that case. It sounds like your situation is one that is is ideal in many ways. And Arnesia, I'm going to be coming to you to sort of get your 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 take on how typical or atypical things are. 
listening to what Theon has shared, um, you know, to what extent do people uh, you know, enjoy that set of circumstances? I think um, what he has is amazing. <laughs> um, that is what we want. We want someone who has um, this disease to be in a very loving, caregiving environment where the burden is shared. He has support and resources through the adult daycare um, and also with having a private duty um, caregiver as well. That is amazing. That's what we want to see. Um, I think it it can be rare depending on the area um, and whether or not someone has access to resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that really would be the difference there. But I think it sounds to me like this is this is exactly what we would want for anybody who's going through this. Mm-hmm. No, in terms of the level of readiness that families have, um, Theon, when you first learned about um, your sister's diagnosis, was it already sort of established because of the way that your family does things that you would be the one caring for her? How did how did that work out? Well, um, Adrian never married and she never had children. She's always been kind of laser focused on her career. And I am her only sibling. Uh, we It's just us two. Our parents have passed on. So, uh, and, and Adrian was diagnosed uh, at 57 years old. So that's relatively young. Mm-hmm. So we really couldn't see this coming to be prepared. Uh-huh. Uh, and personally, I was just like a deer in the headlights, not knowing what to do or where to go Mm -hmm. uh, or how to, what next step to take. Right. So. So was there a moment before formal diagnosis where you realized that something was not as it was before? Yes. Um, Adrian has a college group of friends, her girlfriend's group, and, and they graduated college together. They've been friends over the years. They go visit each other and have a, a, a summer get-together or whatever. And uh, some of her girlfriends brought it to my attention that, hey, something is off with her. Mm. And, and, and then after that conversation, I started to realize some things that I had noticed but kind of just brushed off, you know. You know, you don't pay attention to, you don't know what you don't know, and sometimes you don't pay attention to some of the clues that are there, and I didn't. Uh, uh, she was living in Michigan, uh, Detroit suburb at the time, and um, we have relatives that live there that also mentioned that there was something a little off with Adrian. Mm-hmm. So I I went to uh, Detroit. Uh, we were able to set up some appointments with a neurologist at Detroit Receiving Hospital, and they saw her and diagnosed her then. Um, and mind you, I couldn't imagine this with Adrian because she's always the sharpest. Uh, as I mentioned, she was laser-focused on her career, mm-hmm. fiercely independent. And um, a woman as sharp and as smart as she was, I just could not imagine that in a million years. So I... I I probably didn't pay attention to some of the signs or the clues early on, and I kind of wish that I had. Yeah. When we were talking with Deb earlier, um, she had said that she you know, she stopped working. Now, in, in your sister's case, did she have insurance you know, through an employer or her own when she was diagnosed? Well, um I think that she, her health started to fail over such a long period of time. She moved to Michigan to take a position with Colgate Palmolive, mm-hmm. and she lost that position because, quite frankly, she couldn't focus or, or, or do the job, and I don't think she knew what was wrong, and they didn't either. So she lost that job, went to another position. Her resume was always good. She was always able to find a job and not keep it. So over the years, she dipped into her savings, her 401K, and her insurance kind of lapsed. Um, so by the time she was diagnosed, we were in a quite a situation. I see. Anisha, is it common for people to lose their jobs and insurance before diagnosis because of their symptoms? I think that it's very possible. Um, directly, um, 
I have not heard of all of the different lapses like that occurring at one time. I do think it is it is definitely common for someone to have to stop working. Mm-hmm. Um, it I think it depends on the speed and the progression of the disease um, and also what things are taking place. So some people might start to um, isolate more, even when they're in social settings. Different things like language. Mm-hmm changes because they no longer have access to certain language that they used to have. And that can cause people to turn inward. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that, I think, can really take a toll very quickly yeah. on a person to where they would have to change up all of their daily activities, including working. And do you see denial of uh, of symptoms that people themselves are like, they're starting to observe? Uh, they, they kind of don't want to look at that, as in Adrienne's case, like just being so focused, so on it, that that also contributes then to a delayed um, pursuit of, of consultation and diagnosis. Yes, I do believe that that is part of it. I think that at times um, when we're so engaged in all of the different organizations or um, things that we're taking part of, we are so focused on staying caught up mm-hmm. that we're not paying attention to the symptoms that you know that we're having that we're starting to see. And in turn, I do think that once we do catch on, that's when there's a dramatic change mm-hmm. um, in progression. So a lot of people may find that they have recently found out about the diagnosis, but then the question is how long has it been there because of how quickly they start to um, to go downhill, you know, through that disease progression. Yeah, Theon. Um, what is or was Adrian's treatment plan like in the beginning, and how has it changed since then? Um, well, early on, <clears throat> um, she saw a well. We, as I mentioned, we saw the the, the the neurologist in Detroit, and then once I moved to here, we started uh, seeing neurologists at Washington University, um, and. I think that she was so far gone already that they prescribed medicines to slow down the progression of the disease, mm-hmm. not to stop it. And they and they warned me that um, this w- this w- isn't a fix, but it may slow down the the, the natural progression of the disease. Mm-hmm. And I think it did for a while. Uh, and other than that, to keep her very active and to uh, just engage with her. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I mentioned. The music, I try to make sure that she uh, has music playing a, a lot, and I talk to her just like I'm talking to you. Even though she's become nonverbal now, mm-hmm. I still engage with her. Well, my family engages with her, and, and uh, I think she's uh, experienced a, po- a positive uh, home. So Yeah. Well, at the beginning, I asked how your sister is doing, but how about you? How are you doing today? Well, uh, thank you for asking. Um, I think that well, I'm fine physically. I've had I have had some physical challenges since Adrian has been diagnosed. I don't know if those can be attributed to my worrying because I do sometimes lay awake at night thinking about what the next step is going to be. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm not going to be able to keep her at home for a lot longer, and we we may have to. Uh, uh, have her in a facility, and uh, you know you hear horror stories about that, and I need to be prepared. We're working on that, and you know there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things to think about. You have to trust her with the people at the daycare, and trust her with the personal assistance that come on come into the home. So, um, and then sometimes I I wonder what's going through her mind. So. Uh, Physically, I'm okay. I I have taken the suggestions of the Alzheimer's Association by uh, getting therapy, and for myself, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it's a it's a my needs increase as Adrian's needs increase. Sure. So, but we're we're making it. I think that my situation is ideal as far as that as far as that's concerned, mm-hmm. because Adrian is I think receiving a good. You know, it's a good experience. Now, Arnisha, for those families that are are not in the same situation as Theon and his family, 
Um, you know, there is a shortage of people to care for those who have Alzheimer's. So, Dion, you've mentioned facilities. There need to be people who work in those facilities. Um, how have you seen that shortage play out for families when they come to the point where they need help from outside? Yeah, so there definitely is a shortage. Um, and I believe in the vaccine figures report for 2023, they estimated that we're going to need about 1.2 million additional direct care workers um, between 2020 to 2030. Um, that is a dramatic increase. And as someone who works in long-term care, I think I have seen so many caregivers. How could we possibly need that many people? But we need caregivers that are going to be equipped. And that's part of the reason that we have such a shortage is that, and, and, and I can speak for this for nursing homes, we are not equipping the staff with everything that is needed to understand how to provide the same care that Theon is giving in the environment that we have as a long-term care residential facility. Mm -hmm. So for those who are providing care, whether they're primary care providers like you, unpaid, it's family, or those who do this for work, how do you avoid burnout? And are there coping mechanisms or support groups? The, um, Theon, you've talked about getting uh, counseling and connecting with the um, Alzheimer's Association. Are there some other things that can help people stay, you know, as whole as possible as they are, as they're fulfilling these um these really important roles? Yes, um, absolutely. I think one of the most important things that anyone could know to help reduce burnout, because it will come, no matter how prepared you are. You cannot be the most prepared person on earth. There are so many twists and turns with this path. But understanding interventions for behavioral changes um, is very important. Mm. Um, it could be behavioral or physical changes. So, I mean, I've seen caregivers that have gotten so stressed because the person that they're working with won't move their leg or, you know, can't <laughs> can't make that next move or maybe they're not responding as quickly as you'd like them to. And realizing that we have to live in their world, that is where we find success. So as you're sitting here, we're having this conversation, Theon, and everything that you have experienced, um, what kind of what kind of support has been most helpful to you? Well, I, I did mention Alzheimer's Association. Uh, the the neurologist at Washington U kind of set me off in, into that direction. Uh, Age Smart and uh, Illinois Department of Aging uh, have also opened the door for resources. And we personally, our family, we, we're not rich. But uh, you don't know what you don't know. And there are resources that are available. One resource kind of open the door for another resource and communicating to open the door for another. But I think um, uh, as far as me, I have to put a, a, a spiritual twist on it so I don't get so frustrated sometimes mm -hmm. when, when my sister doesn't put her arm in the jacket and we're on the way to and I have to go to work. Um, I have to just kind of look at it differently. Uh, this is an opportunity for me uh, to grow spiritually, for one thing, and to have some type of focus and value and purpose for my own life. Uh, and then it's not so frustrating when Adrian doesn't cooperate. Theon, thank you so much for coming today. I hope that um, you can keep adding to that Motown playlist and that Adrian will continue to enjoy that at home. Theon Phillips has been the primary caregiver to his elder sister, Adrienne, since she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2016. We really appreciate your opening up with us today. Thank you for having me. Coming up, healthcare professionals give real-life context to Alzheimer's facts and figures. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association 
committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Every year, the Alzheimer's Association publishes a report called Alzheimer's Disease Facts and Figures. And just a few years ago, its 2020 report, which focused on future challenges, covered three overlapping areas of concern that continue. Workforce shortages, the increasing number of Alzheimer's patients as our population in, uh, ages, and personal health consequences for both paid and unpaid caregivers of those with Alzheimer's. Arnesia Kalk remains to talk with us about that. We also have another geriatric specialist joining us now to put some key facts and figures into real-life context. Dr. Monique Williams, Senior Medical Director at Oak Street Health. Dr. Williams, welcome and thank you for being here today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we have heard um, a lot so far. There's still much more to cover. Um, and we've had people who are sending in their, their questions and comments. Richard from St. Louis wants to know how people can tell the difference between Alzheimer's, dementia, difficulty hearing, or just old age. So, excellent question. So, one of the things that I recommend is if somebody thinks they have some trouble with hearing or, for example, their loved ones are telling them that they think that they're having a hearing issue, getting that checked out is essential because um, hearing impairment can sometimes appear as if people are not retaining information and it's because they didn't hear it to begin with. Mm -hmm. So getting that formal audiology testing and then getting hearing aids and wearing hearing aids consistently is important and some studies suggest that when people have hearing impairment that's untreated it's untreated it actually can lead to long-term problems with memory and thinking. Mm -hmm. And in terms of normal aging, the difference between normal aging and Alzheimer's or other dementias would be, so for example, with normal aging, you might go from one room to another and then think, I don't know what I'm here to get. And and I remember when I was a medical student, somebody told me, yeah, I have a bad case of hereafter syndrome. And I said, hereafter syndrome? I've never learned that in school. And, and the person said, well, that's when you go from one room to another and you say, oh my, what am I hereafter? It affects a lot of people regardless of age. So that's totally normal. Or the other thing that people commonly see is, you know, if you're talking about a movie, you might say, you know, the movie with that guy who was in the other movie with the other guy, and then there's a delayed recall of names, or you bump into an acquaintance and the name comes back later, that's completely normal. Mm -hmm. When we talk about Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, those are changes in memory and thinking that are consistent and sufficient to affect everyday life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a nuisance when you don't remember remember the acquaintance that you met a couple years ago's name and it comes back to you when you're putting away the groceries. But it's an impediment when people are missing appointments, missing bills, you know, forgetting um, forgetting important dates and tasks. Mm -hmm. So it's a change that's substantial that's affecting everyday life. So right now in this room, I'm sitting with two geriatric specialists. So you represent the, the workforce that exists but there are workforce shortages. So a question like this that we've received from one of our listeners could very well be someone who needs to see somebody but doesn't know where to go or there isn't, there isn't someone to see. Who is it that diagnoses Alzheimer's? Um, so Alzheimer's and other related dementias are diagnosed by several different types of specialists. First mm -hmm. and foremost, sometimes they're often diagnosed by the dementia, Alzheimer's or other dementias is often diagnosed by a primary care provider. And due to the fact that um, there is a proactive concern about screening for memory and thinking problems, one of the reasons why the Medicare annual wellness visit includes some questions and screening for memory impairment is because of the importance of screening and early diagnosis and detection. So. For a good proportion of people, they would be diagnosed by their primary care provider. There are other people who might see specialists, and that can vary by region. There are some regions of the country where people might see a psychiatrist or a neuropsychologist. There are other parts of the country where they would see a geriatrician or a neurologist, particularly like a geriatric or a dementia neurologist. So mm -hmm. there are a bunch of different team members that may make a diagnosis. And Anisha, who is it that provides the medical care? So 
it really will depend on the setting. If someone is at home, um, a lot of times that medical care is going to come from family members who have to learn um, everything that they will have to do, you know, through the day-to-day activities um, as far as ADLs. So they may be um, doing feeding, dressing, um, bathing, things like that. If we are in a facility um, at the point of diagnosis, then we're looking at care staff, such as um, CNAs, um, certified medical techs who do medications, um, as well as director of nursing. Mm-hmm. Now, if there is so much need for people who both diagnose and then provide the medical care, not necessarily mutually exclusive, why are workforce numbers so low? In part, that's because, so if you look, for example, if you, you can look at all the different healthcare disciplines, but for example, for physicians, um, the number of physicians that are going into care of older adults, since dementia is more common as people get to age 65 and older, but people who specialize in dementia care, it's a small number of people who go into aging care. So that that's one of the reasons why a lot of different organizations are highlighting the importance of careers in aging, whether it's, you know, primary care or geriatric medicine or, you know, geriatric nursing or nurse practitioners or PAs. Um, And today is, this week is actually Careers in Aging Week, where the Gerontological Society of America highlights the importance of these careers and the different opportunities. For example, being a social worker who specializes in this area. Um, So part of it is making sure we have a pool that's engaged in aging specialty care. Mm -hmm. The other thing is making sure that the primary care teams, the physicians, the nurse practitioners, the physician assistants who do primary care get additional training so that they have that skill set and continue to refine that skill set as science advances. Mm -hmm. And we did get a, a note from Denise on Facebook who said the screening test alone without input from family members caused delay in finally getting medication to slow onset. So that's at a different point sort of in that that journey from I, something needs to be checked out here to um, to treatment after diagnosis. With the current situation you know, being what it is, um, why is it that each of you chose to go into geriatrics when you did? So Arnesia, if you can take that one first. I chose to go into geriatrics because that's what I've loved. Um, I grew up in a German Lutheran church and environment. Um, So I was surrounded by older adults. Um, Even when it came to my community that I lived in, my apartment complex growing up, that's all I've ever known. And I think that it really solidified my career path to personally go through what it's like to have a loved one die from Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Um, It was incredibly heartbreaking Um, It was terrifying to see the changes day to day. And I was a virtual caregiver. I was not physically there. Um, So I, but I did have the same load. I would be on the phone or through video chat hours on end, trying to console and just provide that socialization um, and love as as was needed for my own grandfather. So um, that definitely struck a chord with me. And I knew this was definitely the field that I needed to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I then, you know, after that experience and a couple of others realized I needed to specialize specifically in dementia care. Mm-hmm. Is that resonating at all for yeah. you? I actually yeah. decided to become a geriatrician when I was four. So oh. my great-great-grandmother <laughs> lived to be 114. Wow. And she had osteoporosis and actually fell and broke a hip when she was 106. They didn't want to do surgery because she was the oldest patient on the orthopedic service at the teaching hospital at the time. So she said, find something wrong with me that precludes surgery. They couldn't. They did her hip. And she continued to fix Sunday dinner for multiple generations for years until her last six months of life. But I wondered, why was she sharp as a tack? And why did other people have cognitive issues? So Mm. when I was four, I told my mom, I need to talk to our doctor. So she takes me to the doctor. And I asked him for career advice. And he told my mom, she's not sick. She just wanted to make sure she could be a geriatrician and, you know, get her career plan in place. And my mom explained, we do not do career development with the doctor for the same copay as healthcare when we're four. So there is a personal connection then. And we in in earlier parts of the segment, we were talking about how many people are projected to have 
some form of dementia and Alzheimer's specifically by you know, 2050. How well aware are people that there are so many with Alzheimer's already, that there's more projected? And is that is, is lack of awareness part of the reason there aren't more people um, who are pursuing careers that will, will help these patients and, and all the, the people around them that make their community? I think that's definitely a barrier. It's a barrier to a few things. So lack of lack of awareness of Alzheimer's disease, I think, is a barrier to diagnosis and detection. Um, also, it's a barrier to people understanding that it's a huge public health urgency and that there's a need for these, you know, these care teams with all the different disciplines represented. And actually, um, when I was at WashU, we did a focus group study with um, Dr. Dorothy Edwards and um, several other investigators. And what we found was that a lot of people had the perception that Alzheimer's disease didn't impact minoritized populations as much, which is actually distinctly different from the true, mm-hmm. you know, demographics yeah, of the see disease. More of that. See more about that, minoritized. So, so um, one thing that's relevant is that there are disparities in dementia. And um, so um, black Americans have a twofold higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and then among uh, Latinos, the risk is about 1.5 times higher as compared to non-Hispanic whites. So there definitely are higher rates of disease in these diverse populations. And there are several theories about this, including potentially the burden of vascular risk factors. Also, um, there is a study being conducted in St. Louis that's looking at social determinants of health, like, you know, stressors, individual and institutionalized racism, you know, and access to care that could be impacting um, well-being. So there's the misperception that it's less common in minoritized populations, but it actually is more prevalent. So that's a concern. And it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, doing outreach to people before they lock in a career mm-hmm. is really relevant to, to make sure that we have good representation in our care teams that represents the, the demographics of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And in an earlier segment, cultural differences had come up. So I'm of, of Korean background, and I can tell you that conversations with my mother, who will turn 70 on Saturday, started when she was in her late 40s. And she and her friends were talking in depth about what they wanted to do if they did have dementia or Alzheimer's, and all of the things that they were going to do together and individually to stave it off. So the extent to which like these numbers um, you know, St. Louis is very binary, black and white, um, but sort of not taking into account other cultural groups that will be and have been affected, but also can be part of addressing what is coming for everybody. Is something that that came to mind as we were talking earlier. Um, when it comes to barriers for primary care providers, because they often are the first. Um, I guess, the the first stop. What are some barriers that they may face when trying to diagnose someone who comes in with cognitive issues? One thing that's relevant is to have um, a family member present if possible or someone that you can access to get history on the individual. Because And when you're looking at diverse patient populations, in terms of getting accuracy and diagnosis, rather than relying on paper pencil tests, which can have cultural bias, getting what we call um, like evidence of intra-individual change, how has that person changed from their baseline, is really, really relevant. So asking that person who knows them well, you know, an adult child, a close friend, um, a spouse or partner who can tell you. This is how they always were baseline in terms of their function with finances. This is a change. This is how they always function in terms of short-term memory, but this is the change that's observed. And they can tell you the timeline for the change, the rate of the change, and the magnitude of the change. And with that information, it can be a lot easier to develop, you know, a plan and to determine whether there is change sufficient to be consistent with dementia. So for a lot of primary providers, what they could do is have an appointment that focuses on delving deeper into memory concerns as opposed to, you know, just trying to do that during a visit that's for high blood pressure and diabetes, but rather having a designated appointment that focuses on the memory concerns. And then the primary also might make a referral to one of the specialists we'd listed, such as neurology or geriatric medicine or psychiatry to get more information 
on the nature of the symptoms and the cause of the dementia. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's relevant to understand too is so dementia is the umbrella term that is the broad category, kind of like chest pain. Mm -hmm. So for example, someone could have chest pain because of a rib fracture, pneumonia, or something cardiac. And in the same way, dementia could be due to a number of different things. And if you're thinking of your umbrella, the handle of the umbrella is Alzheimer's disease. And then the other types like Lewy body, vascular, those are the ribs on the umbrella. Mm, okay. And we did have a, a note here from Stacy Newman in STL. She said, my husband recently died from frontal temporal dementia, FTD, which is rarer, hits younger ages and is very difficult to accurately diagnose without an autopsy. Um, we had many struggles trying to teach family members and friends that it was not Alzheimer's. Um, our saving grace was finally, after years of searching, finding medical care and skilled nursing staff who knew how to treat FTD. Um, so if you could address maybe that type of dementia, which is what Bruce Willis has, yes. um, we'd have to get to that at some other time. We are um, coming up here on the end of the program. Before we finish, just as a last word, can you s just s give one word of advice to someone who is looking for help for uh, diagnosis? For anybody who is looking for help with diagnosis, um, my, my ultimate piece of advice is to s never stop looking. Um, please contact the Alzheimer's Association. We have a 24-7 helpline, you know, that is always available for anyone. I would echo the same sentiment. If um, a diagnosis needs to be sought, reaching out to the Alzheimer's Association for resources and support is really an excellent option. Dr. Monique Williams is Senior Medical Director at Oak Street Health, and Arnesia Kalk is a gerontologist at Oak Street Health and runs her own practice. Thank you for joining us. Today's episode was produced by Avery Rogers. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.